Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Tom Nebel. I'm pinch hitting again for a second week in a row. Our pastor gets uh, 26 weeks of vacation a year. <laughs> hey, why don't we pray, all right? Uh, we have been praying together in song, and God, we've been addressing you, acknowledging your greatness, and yet there's people here that are hurting, people beat up, and people looking for a, a real touch of grace today. So God, we ask you to, uh, to meet us here. God, we pray for each other, that uh, we're open to learning today and open to, uh, to changing, adjusting who we are to step better in line with you. And God, at the end of this day, may we uh, rest on our beds and give thanks to you for the perspective that you bring. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years back, I was riding in a car with a couple of friends of mine. They're from Milwaukee. Uh, what we had in common is that all three of us were involved in ministry. What we didn't have in common is that two of the three of us were uh, Caucasian. The third friend, Paul, uh, is African-American. As we were riding along, my friend Dave, who was driving the car, made a comment that, uh, on the backside of a comment that Paul had made. Paul had said something that was jocular in nature. It was uh, pretty funny. We were kind of laughing. Dave, just uh, really not thinking of the context, uttered a, a colloquial phrase which was offensive to Paul and caused his uh, face to drop. Dave, just out of the blue, said, Well, you cotton picker. Cotton picker. It's a, it's a phrase that comes out of the South. It was a derisive term used to describe African-American men and women. It's not a phrase that we often use. It's not even a phrase that I think we think about all that much. And Dave didn't mean anything offensive, but Paul said, boy, nobody has called me that for the longest time. And his face fell. No, Dave didn't mean anything offensive by it. I, I took a lesson from that and as I thought about today's topic, as we're working our way through the book of James, I was thinking about the very fact that our language itself is a language that divides people. Oftentimes, it's, it's descriptive of, of the roots of our thinking. And though you could use a phrase like cotton picker and not think much of it, 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 it tells us that in our language that there are constructs that divide people. Years back, Branch Rickey, the uh, CEO, the president, the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, took a, took a risk to break down racial barriers. You know that he was scouting those in the Negro League and in 1947 finally recruited a young man named Jackie Robinson to break the color barrier in Major League Baseball. Jackie Robinson would endure great trauma at the hands of people who chose to discriminate. When he interviewed with Branch Rickey, he said to Rickey, well, don't you want a player who will fight? And he says, well, I want a player who is strong enough to keep his mouth shut because you're going to need to turn the other cheek for a few years. Eventually became one of the greats in Major League Baseball. But boy, he took abuse, even from teammates for a season who wondered if they would stand alongside and be teammates with a black man. One teammate who stood out against 
the fray of that was Pee Wee Reese. I happen to have Pee Wee Reese's autograph on a baseball, the very first Los Angeles Dodgers team. At this time, they were in Brooklyn. Pee Wee Reese in the infield was also the team captain, and he chose to stand up and befriend Jackie Robinson. Of course, we see their picture behind me. During the first away series in April of 1947, when the Brooklyn Dodgers were playing in Cincinnati, the fans in Cincinnati were so cruel to Jackie Robinson that Pee Wee Reese went into the center of the diamond, put his arm around Jackie Robinson, and held him until the place became quiet. This book of James, it's all about faith and works. It's about understanding what we read and sang about earlier, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We lived in a land of mercy. But the book of James reminds us that we're in this land of mercy. We have rent to pay. And God expects certain things of us. And this fellow James, writing to a general audience of Christ followers, is now, when we get to chapter 2, going to call us into a, a deeper love for others in this world that looks beyond shallow inconsequentials and character-neutral qualities and says, I will love you despite the obvious separations that can be between us. If you have your Bible here, you're going to want to turn to James chapter 2 as we work our way through this text. If you don't have your own Bible here, we've got them all around us. And though we'll be projecting the, the words, I always encourage the holding of a Bible. You become more familiar with the, uh, the territory here. And James chapter 2, which is found on page 854, is a continuation of this writing from this uh, younger half-brother of Jesus. We know from Mark's gospel, uh, Matthew's gospel, that Jesus had several siblings. Jesus himself born of a virgin. So the, the children then of Mary following that event would have been half-siblings to Jesus. Last week we talked about, if you want to be in this game, we're going to make routine double plays. We're going to be people who, who understand the word of truth. We're going to be people who act on what we now understand. And I suppose continuing already with this baseball theme we touched upon last week, we now read the words in the first four verses of chapter 2 where James sets it up pretty straight, pretty clear for us. He says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, say to the poor man, you must sit there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Describes a... a hypothetical scenario where he talks about people coming into the meeting. Uh, the, the word there actually for meeting, it's a, a, a Greek word. James was writing in the what's known as the Koine Greek, the common Greek language. That word for meeting actually comes from this word, sunagoge. If you peer into that word long enough, you'll see the word what? 
synagogue in there. You see that the history of the, the Christian gathering was built upon the chassis of the Jewish gathering of the synagogue. And by the way, here's how they would come up with a synagogue. There needed to be 10 male heads of households in order to have a synagogue. If you had less than 10 in a given area, then they would have something that we call a place of prayer. But if you really wanted to be into the big leagues, you would have 10 male heads of household, and then you could gather in something called a synagogue. So in the text we're looking at now, again, the the author here, James, is telling us that favoritism is forbidden. And once again, I'm confronted with the stark reality that any time... Pastor Mark assigns a text of scripture for me to teach on. He is really trying to expose my uh, myriad of dysfunctions. Because as I think about this whole issue of showing favoritism, I realize in my own life it can go way beyond issues such as uh, the color of skin. It can be how people act or funny things about them or weird little nuances or ways that they presume, or ways that they do things that I wouldn't do it. And there are just piles of ways where I can run a little mental calculator on why so-and-so doesn't measure up to my view of how people ought to measure up. I'm just telling you, I'm pathetic. <laughs> so he says, what, in a way which I think is wonderful, James looking at his older half-brother Jesus says, my brothers as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. He's referring to his older brother, Jesus, as this glorious one. It must have been fascinating to grow up in that household, to know there was something special about Jesus, never really being able to put your finger on it, and, uh, and yet wondering, was there any jockeying or any kind of, uh, of sibling rivalry that was occurring there? But this, this author, James, then paints the scenario of people coming into the meeting. And and he's saying to a group of predominantly poor people, that's what the early church consisted of, and worldwide generally consists of people on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. He's setting up a scenario here, and he's saying, folks, you got to be careful of putting all your eggs in one basket when you're sizing up people. And he says, if someone wealthy comes in and you right away want to make a special place for them in contradistinction to those who are poor and shabbily dressed, uh, you're putting yourself in a place of judgment where you ought not to be because you do not have a true picture of how people really are. And one way or another, you're to treat people with love. So if you're showing favoritism, it's the antithesis of love. You know, even, uh, even the great leader Napoleon, looking at the royalty versus the common folk, uh, Napoleon put it this way when he was speaking of, uh, of, of, of the distinctions that we often place for people. He says, a throne is only a bench covered with velvet. You know, doesn't take long to take a rich person, cut them down to size. Okay. It says elsewhere in the scriptures, wealth is very fleeting. And rich persons, well, that would pretty much be us, right? And, and, and yet you can understand the early days of the church when they're trying to gain some degree of notoriety, they're trying to gain some degree of legitimacy. It must have been a real feather in the cap to have someone of wealth come into their congregation. It would probably be good PR. 
and it wouldn't be the worst thing to bring people in because, hey, they can help pay the bills and whatever else that consisted of. And James is just cautioning the readers and cautioning us today to not show distinction in how we treat people. As a matter of fact, that word discriminate, the Greek history of that, is it was actually talking about the concept of wavering. And it's saying, on the one hand, you, you understand that to love people truly, we're not going to be discriminatory. But we sometimes waver because we want to, for some reason, bring, give certain people a, a greater degree of honor. Now, he's not talking about being improprietous. If the President of the United States were here, I think we'd want to show certain propriety with that. But what he's saying is you don't size people's character up on the basis of of, uh, inconsequential externals. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes we look at people who don't deserve it, if I could put it that way, and we elevate them to a certain degree. Other times we... Look at people who we don't think have much to offer and we denigrate them or we don't see them as they truly are. I can think of a couple of illustrations out of my own life for that. One I remember a couple of years ago in the summer in August, uh, Lori and I went and spent a few days out in New York City. We really enjoyed doing the, the New York City thing and, you know, Lori's like, gimme, gimme, gimme. <laughs> so we went out to New York and uh, we're, we're tooling around and we went past the Fox television studios, and Lori had remembered that there's this program that she would, was watching uh, at that time. It's no longer on Fox. It's uh, syndicated elsewhere, but it was called Dayside. I don't know if you've ever seen that program. Um, Mike and Julia, they were like the Ken and Barbie of the program, and we're walking by, and they're asking people to come into the studio audience, and I'm thinking, hey, why not? You know, and, and we, we signed up to go in, and it was a small studio audience. They made it really clear from the very beginning that you're going to be on television. And you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, would I want to be on television in front of a national audience? And you know, I always say, well, what would Pastor Cal do? <laughs> so I said, sure, Cal. And I said, well, it was perfect because... We got, the, uh, we got the most perfect seats right there when the cameras were on the audience. We were just right there front and center. And they made it clear, I want you to ask questions of the guests and so on. And, and I'm just dreaming up questions because I'm just like this, this media hog. You know, I, I, I want the spotlight to be on me. Well, prior to, uh, to, to going into the, uh, the, the show, uh, we phoned everybody we could think of back home to watch the show. <laughs> So you could see us. And one of the people we phoned was Lori's dad. And we said, you got to watch us. We're on Fox. It's going to be on a little bit. And it's going to be live. And you'll be able to see it. You know, we're going to be on the program. So anyway, the program takes place. And I tell you, I really am a media hog. It's just, it's, it's wild. Because at the very end, when you, you see yourself on the monitors and you know if you're on, at the very end, uh, the way they had the camera angle, um, they, had, they had Lori. She was right there, you know, full view. And then they got half of me. So if you saw the video, what happens is, you you see me doing this. It was very subtle. So uh, afterwards, we call Lori's dad to see what he thought. And he says, well, I never saw you. We said, what do you mean you never saw us? We were right there. He says, well, I listened the whole time, and I never heard them announce Tom and Lori Nebel. When we told him we were going to be on the show, he thought like we were the guests on the show. And now, 
for your excitement from Madison, Wisconsin. Here's Tom and Lori Neal. So there was a time when he was thinking more highly of me, of us, than was really necessarily deserved. How about the flip side, where you see someone, you meet someone, you don't think much of them, and they're much greater than you had ever anticipated. Um, When I was in graduate school, I had a roommate named Gary. He was New Jersey. He was a big uh, New York Giants fan. And midway through the year, we had another roommate join us whose name was Ron. His last name was Ron Richardson. So I had Gary LaPeric and Ron Richardson as roommates. Gary, uh, this this guy Ron, this newcomer to our apartment, was a uh, New York Yankees fan a big-time New York Yankees fan. He had stuff all over the walls. He had New York Yankees clocks and pennants and you name it. He had autographed this and that. So Gary and Ron are always talking about the Yankees, isn't it? Well, several weeks go by. It must have been six or seven or eight weeks. And Ron says, oh, by the way, my dad's going to be in town. I want you to meet him later. So his dad was from South Carolina, had been in Denver. So we got to meet him later on. And we must spend an hour just yakking at the apartment, shaking hands. Getting... The guy was not impressive at all. There's nothing, nothing that would impress you if you'd meet him about him other than he's a very kind person, a very sharp person. And as we're talking, Gary's computer starts to click. And he's finally putting some things together. This is Ron Richardson. His dad, his name was Bobby. And out of the blue, finally, Gary screams, You're Bobby Richardson! (laughs) Now, if you know anything about the history of the New York Yankees and their dynasties, Bobby Richardson, seven-time... World Series participant, five-time Golden Glove defensive champion. One time, 1960, he was the uh, the the uh, MVP of the World Series. I mean, an amazing person. Ron never opened his trap about that. Bobby didn't make a big deal about it, and all of a sudden, you find just a regular old guy with someone of great notoriety. So James here, in this text we're looking at, says you don't have the capacity to figure out on the basis of shallow externals who people are and how they operate. And and basically what I'm saying to you, knock it off. Stop discriminating in all the ways that you might want to do that. And there are a lot of ways, at least as I look at my own life. So he goes on. Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers... Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit his kingdom? He promised those who love him. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to who you belong? uses that word slander, by the way. It's a Greek word, blasphemos, means to blaspheme Jesus. He's saying, you know what? You're throwing yourself in with people that you really can't trust fundamentally. Now, there was context to this because in those days, the rich were always the exploiters. And if you were wealthy, it meant you exploited someone along the way. That's not necessarily the way things are in our society. It does cause us to do some self-seeking and to look inward a little bit. But James is writing to a group of people who have been redeemed and are now living in this land of mercy. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's writing to people like us, and he's saying, you are living in this land of mercy. God has been so gracious and wonderfully merciful to you, not counting your sins against you. So be pretty careful how you're dealing with others. And he says, wait a minute. At least in those days, 
It's the rich that you're kind of kissing up to. They're the very ones who've been exploiting you. And are you sure you want to uh, throw yourself in with uh, people of dubious intention? I don't know if you'd heard about the time this uh, the cardinal in charge of public relations goes in to see the pope there at the Vatican and he says, hey, we got something that has, uh, has come up. Uh, I think you've got to give it consideration. We, we just received a, an invitation from, uh, from Ayud Olmer, the uh, prime minister of Israel. He wants to settle this question once and for all. Who's superior, the, the Jews or the Catholics? So he is challenging you to 18 holes of golf. Pope says, well, I, I never picked up a club in my life. I don't know the first thing about it. The cardinal says, no, I got this thing worked out. He says, I, we can get a hold of Jack Nicholas. Jack Nicholas is a, is a, uh, a Catholic. We could run the paperwork through. We could ordain him. We could actually turn him into a cardinal. The day of the match, we'll send him instead of you. He'll explain that you weren't able to make it. Pope says, gee, I, I, man, I don't. He says, you think it'll work? He says, well, I really think we could pull this. Well, he says, well, do what you got to do. So the day of the golf match happens. Jack Nicholas agrees to it. He goes and he golfs, and then he reports to the Vatican to, to explain what had happened. Goes in, sees the Pope, kisses the ring. The Pope says, well, tell me uh, what, what happened. Uh, he says, well, Your Holiness, I, I golf pretty well, but I came in second. He says, wait a minute, you came in second to Ehud Oldmer, the uh, prime minister of Israel? He says, uh, no, the prime minister couldn't make it. I lost to somebody named Rabbi Woods. <laughs> See, you just, you just don't know who you're dealing with. And, and James is saying, if you're going to live in this land of mercy, you have some rent to pay. And, and part of what you do as believers is you level the playing field and you treat everyone with love and everyone with kindness and everyone with affection because it's the rent that you pay. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism... You sin and are convinced, uh, convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. What he's basically saying is, you know what, none of us are clean. None of us are perfect. We better be really careful if we're going to shun other people on the basis of shallow externals and uh, inconsequential non-character issues. And what he's really saying is that, you know, if you break the law, you've broken the law. Uh, in a big way, in a little way, you've broken the law. And, you know, if, if you are convicted, let's say, of a felony or you are known as a criminal, you probably haven't broken the summation of the law. You've probably broken a little bit of the law. Well, all of us, in a sense, are those felons. We're all convicts. We've all broken the law. And what he's then doing is hearkening back to this golden law. <laughs> he calls it a, a, a royal law. We call it the golden 
rule. And it's the words of Jesus, right? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And this is honestly, when I think about this, this is where, where, where the spotlight really gets turned on me in terms of dysfunction. Because I started to think about, how do I size people up? Um, one of the ways I do is when language is, is misused. I mean, like, they dangle the modifiers and all that kind of stuff. When people say, I instead of me. Or, you know, all this. So I, it, it's a trapping I have. And when that happens, what happens, I have a natural way where I want to kick people into another category. I discriminate. Is that funny? I mean, it's funny, weird. I, I, I know I'm the most loving I've ever been in my life, but I know I got a long way to go. And I'm thinking about this. You know, about 10 years ago, I took up a hobby, which is uh, motorcycle riding. I, I really love to ride. I've got a couple of them. I, ri- I, I, I love it. I'm out there. And one of the things when I started motorcycle riding, I noticed when you're out on the highway and you run into uh, other motorcycles that are coming your way, they had this sort of signal. And if you're a motorcyclist, you know what I'm talking about. It's this. You kind of give a little peace signal out to the side, right? You know? And, it, and it's kind of our way as motorcycle people. You know, that it's our way of communicating, hey, uh, we're having more fun than everybody else. <laughs> it's just what we do. So you go by and you do this. So I, I'm, I'm inaugurated into the motorcycle club, you know, and I'm starting to do this. I'm out there. You know what? This last week I'm riding my motorcycle, and I'm going this way. You know who's coming this way? A guy on a moped. <laughs> and the guy on the moped does this. And I'm thinking, you are not even cool enough (laughs) to use our cool signal. (laughs) I told you. I told you. But we size people up. And it's not the way it ought to be. You see, kindness is the rent that we pay for living in the land of mercy. You're living in the land of mercy if you're a Christ follower. And, and, and he has just separated your sins from you and from eternity. And, and God himself is saying, you live in the land of mercy. And James here is a spokesperson says, kindness is the rent that we pay for living in the land of mercy. And I just want you to think for a minute, who are you not kind toward? Just just fill that one in. Love your neighbor as yourself, it says. Verse 12, just to wrap it up. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful Mercy triumphs over judgment. Wow, this is, this is powerful stuff, isn't it? There's a reminder that we will be judged. That there's a price that we pay when we fail to be kind in all regard. Okay, the, the, so he says, speak and act that way. Kindness is the rent we pay to live in the land of mercy. Because 
judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. He says, if you want to live in the world of judgment, just go for it. Just go for it and be pathetic and be petty and, and be all that way. And I know for some of us, it is excruciatingly difficult to step over into the side of love for people who have hurt us. I get that. But he says, what do you want? If you want to live in the land of mercy, there's rent to pay. And kindness is the rent we pay to live in the land of mercy. And isn't that powerful, that last phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment? At the end of the day, mercy is what wins, and you might as well be on the winning team. How do you want to be known? How do, what do you want your legacy to be? I really want my legacy to be that I was a kind, loving person who really lived in the land of mercy, and kindness was the rent that I paid to live there. I was thinking about a funeral I attended just a couple of months ago. A friend of mine up in Sturgeon Bay, my hometown, um, his father had died, and, and I just knew I needed to go up and, and be there. So I, I, I get to the funeral home, I see my friend Randy. Well, he starts talking about his dad. His name, dad was named Bob, and Bob was notorious in Sturgeon Bay because of an act of uh, bravery, I suppose you could say, that he committed as a high schooler at the age of 16. Um, Randy's dad, at the age of 16, got his pilot's license back in the 1950s. So he was able to fly an airplane. Now, he didn't own an airplane. He borrowed one. He rented one from somebody. And one day, some friends at his high school in Sturgeon Bay had challenged Bob and said, I'll bet you can not fly an airplane under the Sturgeon Bay Bridge. (laughs) Now, there's my hometown bridge. So he went out and he measured it. He figured he could do it. And uh, lo and behold, one day he told his friends what to expect and they were out there on the bridge. He flew a little plane under the bridge. I I know he got a wrist slap for that, but he did it. And at the funeral home there next to the urn was a little model bridge somebody had made with a little airplane under it. And And Randy had said to me, you know, that's how people remember my dad. They remember him for flying that plane so low. He says, but that's not how I remember him. I remember him as a person of kindness. And he says, and by the way, in a little while, I've got to do the eulogy. And he says, I don't know what to say. And I said, well, have you heard any stories of kindness about your dad even at this funeral gathering? And he says, well, as a matter of fact, I have. And I said, well, you stand in front of the group and you tell everybody that your dad should be known not for how low he flew, but for how Tall he stood as a man, and during the eulogy, Randy told this story of a woman who had come to him just that day, a little old bent-over lady who talked about his father's character. She said, back in the 1960s, our family was, was not well regarded in this community. Husband out of work, had several mouths to feed, and your dad who ran his neighborhood grocery store, had kept a tab for us. You know what that means? You just keep the bill going. And she told Randy what his dad had done for her. One day after receiving this invoice in the mail, she went in to Randy's dad and apologized. She said, I received this invoice and I can't pay it now. He said, just pay as much as you can whenever you can. It's all taken care of. She said, are you sure? He says, yes, that's all right. Whenever you can pay it, whenever you can pay it, it's fine by me. And she said, Randy, I left the store that day, and I was halfway out the door. 
he stopped me. And he said, wait a minute. I said, what? He said, you haven't even picked up your groceries yet today. See, kindness is the rent we pay to live in the land of mercy. And by the way, if you were to go to Keystone Park today in Brooklyn, New York, you'd see a bronze statue of Pee Wee Reese and Jackie Robinson. Just the way it should be. Okay. Let's pray. God, we just confess to you that uh, we discriminate. And I pray, God, that you'd reveal all this silliness to me and to us. Um, so people on the mopeds matter. <laughs> and... Uh, it's just so silly, God. Um, you're so gracious. You've been so merciful to us. And uh, God, we just want to pay the rent. So help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.